Well, welcome to another Everyone Wednesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Everyone wins who calls in to win something or to attempt to win something. Uh, today here on the program, we're going to get into a conversation about the Lord's Supper and why it is so important as we're, we're a couple weeks away. Lent is actually, let's see, it's uh, February the 14th, Valentine's Day is also going to be uh, Ash Wednesday, and that's when the Lenten season begins. And it's a time when people put a lot more emphasis on spiritual growth, spiritual development, spiritual maturity. And so uh, we've got a great resource that we're going to be giving away today. We do have one copy of it on a uh, book on the Lord's Table. And uh, But more importantly, though, I want to encourage you to give us a call at 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. The book we're going to get into, Jonathan Black's book on the Lord's Supper, um, Our Promised Place of Intimacy and Transformation with Jesus, a uh, really helpful resource this time of year. But I think it's important, as we, we're, th the whole theme of Lent is getting back to the basics. And that's what we're going to be talking about here today on the program. I mean, I realize Lent is not for another month, I get it, but we're going to get into this here. I want to do a follow-up first. This is a, a little bit of analysis, balance, and clarity. With regard to a former Bottom Line Show guest who you may have heard about maybe 10 years ago, and you met here on the Bottom Line Show around eight years ago. Her name is Kim Davis. Now, Kim Davis was, this was in 2015, right before the Obergefell decision was passed and the Supreme Court invented uh, the constitutional right to get married if you were in a quote-unquote same-sex relationship. Um, and, I, and I say this again, it's not in, I'm just finding out how many counties there are in Kentucky because I just have to put this in perspective here. Um, I, I overstate it sometimes, but I, I don't want to understate it as well. Kim Davis's situation is very, very interesting because it really underscores um, the, the problems I think that we're facing in the culture right now for people of the Christian faith. I had a very interesting conversation with Kim at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention about uh, seven years ago. She had written a book about her story, and she'd actually won her case legally. Uh, it was only on appeal and whatever, now that she's dealing with more legal nonsense. And, and I'm hoping and praying that uh, she gets some resolution for her case. The former K Kentucky County clerk by the name of Kim Davis has been ordered by United States District Judge David L. Bunning to uh, award the plaintiffs in her case $246,000 in attorney's fees and an additional $14,000 in other expenses. Um, U.S. District, the district court judge issued a memorandum opinion and an order. He says, basically, uh, the court is mindful that in this case, the plaintiffs not only pre prevailed, but they obtained the results sought. They sought to vindicate their fundamental right to marry and obtain marriage licenses, and they did so. The court has reviewed the plaintiff's submissions and finds that the hours expended and the rates charged are reasonable. Okay, that's the basic stuff. Now, here's what happened. In December of 2015, Governor Matt Bevan, who was the governor of Kentucky at the time, issued an executive order that granted religious exemptions to all clerks in the state. But there was one case of a couple who said they, uh, basically a, a woman, um, a couple, rather a couple of guys, came into Kim Davis's clerk's office and said, you have to issue us a marriage license. And she said, I won't do it. It's just, it, you know, it's, it's incredible. This is a position that's an elected position right after the um, Supreme Court basically struck down the ban. The, well, they didn't strike down the ban. 
The Obergefell decision, which is five to four, Anthony Kennedy rewriting the law on this one, uh, basically, and I'm, I'm only saying that because he did. I mean, if, if he had not, if it had been contentiously challenged, uh, I might beg to differ. But he literally invented, um, he, he literally invented in the same way the Brown decision, not Brown versus Support of Education, but there was another Brown decision versus the state of Texas in 2004, I believe, that basically in, invented a constitutional right to privacy for gay couples who wanted to have intimacy and therefore was supposed to be a precursor for same-sex marriage. I mean, the, the laws regarding marriage are crazy in this country. Marriage is a biblical covenant. Um, the Catholic Church, it's a sacrament, but to those who are, are the Christian Church, it's still a covenant. It's a covenant before God and before man. And you, you know, have the ceremony performed by somebody who should, it, people have been marrying other people for years. It, it's, we, we kind of have this notion that it's always been this way in the United States. You get a marriage license and you go to the justice of the peace or a pastor or somebody's got some kind of credentials and then they do the marrying and that's, that's it. But that's the civil part of the ceremony. There was a time when after same-sex quote-unquote marriage allegedly was passed because of the Obergefell decision, all, all the Obergefell decision did, you had two women who were in a same-sex relationship. They lived in the uh, uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts that recognized same-sex quote-unquote marriage as legally married, uh, but nobody else did at the time. One of the women worked for, uh, I think, a federal agency, had a nice fat federal pension. She died, the, um, the surviving member of the partnership said that I should be entitled to have this the same way a spouse would. Um, the original court decision said no, and then they finally took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said yeah. Based on that decision then, states all over the country said, well, you have to let two men get married or two women get married the same way you would a man and a woman. And it's interesting because, I mean, <laughs> this right after that happened, Rowan County, Kentucky clerk Kim Davis who had run for office as an elected official, all of the county clerks in Kentucky, which is also a Commonwealth, by the way, are elected officials. And Kim Davis said, I'm not going to issue a marriage license to same-sex couples. Uh, two guys, David Ermold and David Moore, were one of the same-sex couples that she refused to give a marriage license to. And because she wouldn't do it, remember Kim Davis went to jail um, last September, a federal jury awarded David Ermold and David Moore $50,000 each in damages in their lawsuit against Kim Davis. And that's in addition to the $260,000 that Judge Bunning awarded Davis to pay as well. Now, the representative for Mr. Ermold and Mr. Moore is a guy called Joe Buckles. Anyway, Joe Buckles told NPR last year he was thrilled by the jury's decision. His clients were completely vindicated. He said, and I quote, the Supreme Court says that my clients have a constitutional right to marry under the 14th Amendment. It's, you'll never find that in the 14th Amendment. But that's the way people who support that will, will read this. But this isn't really about Kim Davis's religion. The case isn't really about our client's right to marry. The case is about a government official who refused to do her job. It's a pretty simple case. Now, if I had a dollar for every time a government official said they're not going to do their job and the left heralded that decision, then this statement's pretty dumb. I mean, in all honesty, when our now current emperor, Governor Gavin Newsom, was the mayor of San Francisco. Remember, he started issuing same-sex, quote-unquote, marriage licenses by telling gay couples, go down to the county clerk, 
get your marriage license and instead of where it says husband and wife cross it out and put spouse and spouse and the city of san francisco actually honored that nonsense now people who are looking at the 14th Amendment and saying, yeah, I mean, establishment clause and, you know, this is helpful to and things like slavery and stuff like that had nothing to do with two gay men who wanted to get married. This isn't a simple case because there are, do you know how many counties there are in Kentucky? Kentucky has a population of 4 million people as of 2021. Orange County, to put it in perspective, where our studios are based, has a population of 3 million and change. There are 58 counties in the entire state of California, covering 39 million people. There are 120 counties in the Commonwealth of Kentucky that cover 4 million people. Can you imagine Orange County divided into 58 different pieces? I mean, no, I mean, it's ridiculous when you think about how many different counties there are, or maybe even worse, 120 pieces. Kim Davis was one of 120 county clerks and these guys just have, it's not that big. These guys just had to pick her office. And there were four people working in the office too. Kim Davis was the county clerk, but there are other people in that office who could have issued that document. For some reason, it feels like she was targeted. Oh, and by the way, did I mention that when she ran for office, she ran as a Democrat, but then once she got into office, she rediscovered a Christian faith. She was going through a divorce. It was kind of nasty. And she became a Republican. And next thing you know, here comes the left with daggers uh, drawn, ready to stab, ready to slice, ready to cut. There was a period, probably during, I'd say it's safe to say during the Obama administration, where the judiciary was, or judiciary? Judiciary was weaponized. And you saw this happening all over the place. The Kim Davis case was a classic example. This is when you started to see the photographers in New Mexico showing up and going, hey, wait a minute. I mean, this is ridiculous. How come you're suing me? I, I, these guys came out of nowhere. People were showing up like at wedding chapels in Idaho saying, yeah, we came in from Pennsylvania. We want to get... It was ridiculous. Matt Staver and the Liberty Council are actually uh, working on Kim Davis's case. They say, uh, nope, it's... Uh, it's not, this is not going to be an issue simply because, quite frankly, the Matt Bevan exemption, the executive order at the end of 2015, that said you have religious exemptions to every clerk in the state. The state has an obligation to issue a marriage license to two men or two women or a man and a woman, but every employee has the right to say, I'm not going to sign it. So we'll see what happens here. It's going to go to appeal uh, right now. The uh, Liberty Council says they're going to appeal the decision to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit if their appeal fails here. And there's a good possibility that the appeal will be upheld. But please keep Kim Davis in your prayers. That poor woman's been through a lot. Maybe not as much as uh, Jack Phillips or Baronel Stutzman, but she's been through a lot. On the other side of this break, one of the great things about our Lord's Supper is the fact that it renews us that every time you partake in the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, you're proclaiming his death until he comes again. It's been at the heart of our worship as Christians for years and years and years. But why has it become so trivialized in the culture right now? Why is it that so many people kind of look at communion as something you do once or twice a year or whenever you kind of get around to it? Uh, Jonathan Black has written a great book on the Lord's Supper, simply called The Lord's Supper. And I think it's going to help us understand as we have people like Kim Davis getting back to her Christian faith and other people 
the world over rediscovering their faith in Christ or coming to faith for the first time. We want to know why communion is such a big deal. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper with pastor and author Jonathan Black coming up next as the bottom line continues. For more than 50 years, Dennis Wilson has been offering better alternatives to what the market offers when it comes to investments like certificates of deposit and real estate investment trust. Dennis's 3D account pays even better than market interest rate. Here's Dennis to explain. So what is a 3D account and how does it work? A 3D account is a real estate-backed investment without Wall Street risk. It pays an amazing interest of 7% for the next three years. At the end of three years, you can take your money out so you can see it's definitely not a REIT, or you can reinvest it at 7% in a new program. Go ahead and call today and ask about the 7% account. And then while you're on the phone and ask about our accounts that are pays even higher amounts for funds over 250,000. Learn more about Dennis Wilson's 3D Money account, the better alternative to the Real Estate Investment Trust. Call 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial, simply better alternatives. It is iconic. It is obviously one of the best known pieces of our Christian history. And many of us could uh, go ahead and take a look at this and say, we understand exactly what this is all about. But have we been doing this for such a long time that we don't really understand what entails or what is involved in something called the Lord's Supper. Joining me today here on The Bottom Line Show is Dr. Jonathan Black, who's an ordained pastor, a teacher in the Apostolic Church, and a lecturer in theology at Regents Theological College in uh, the UK. He's also the co-director of the Institute for Pentecostal Theology. Uh, Originally from Northern Ireland, we're having a chat with him in Wales today uh, as we discuss a brand new book of his that is simply titled The Lord's Supper our promised place of intimacy and transformation with Jesus. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Pastor and Dr. Jonathan Black, welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you very much for having me. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper, because I, I as I've gotten older and been involved in pastoral ministry and lay ministry and, and things of that nature, it never ceases to amaze me the number of people who will participate in the Lord's Supper, but really don't fully understand what they're getting into. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think in many ways, it's something that we're so familiar with that we almost forget to talk about. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it can be really easy for us to forget what it is we're doing or, or not to or not always to explain in ways that, um, that new Christians understand. And sometimes people just, you know, they become Christians, they come into church, they say this is something that we do regularly, but mm-hmm. they might not always understand it. And, and because because for a lot of us, it's just so instinctive because we've grown up knowing this all the time um, that maybe we forget a little bit um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, about the importance of explaining um just what goes on uh, that uh, and maybe for a lot of us as well we've 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 just picked up over the years the meaning gradually through the practice of the supper um rather than sitting down and thinking about it or talking about it um and so as so i think it's something that it probably helps us to to do a lot more talking about to make sure mm-hmm. that we really understand what's going on yeah, it's been very interesting, especially during the pandemic, as uh, we were in various stages of sometimes worshiping online or sometimes worshiping in person, and how watching how different congregations, literally the world over, handled the Lord's Supper. I would look at my wife some mornings and say, "I think they need a refresher course," you know, because you you you. 
it reminds me of the first, I'm 62, and the first 30 years of my life, I went to the churches that my dad was the minister of music at, and they were largely uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, Dutch Reform. And it was amazing to me how different churches handled communion. The last church we spent the bulk of time at literally took communion as a congregation on months that had five Sundays. And it was the fifth yeah. Sunday of the month, and it was just a lot of meditative music that was played. Uh, Wonder Bread was passed out, grape juice was dispersed, and everybody ate the bread individually and drank the wine together. And a bunch of scripture was read. I was in my early 30s when my oldest daughter went through her first communion class at a Lutheran church where I finally got the nuts and bolts of what was, was other than in the night in which he was betrayed, you know, and going on for everything there. Um, what are you seeing, Dr. Jonathan Black, in terms of, I mean, obviously you've written a book about this, this is a passion of yours, but what are you seeing in terms of the church worldwide where either we are so badly misinformed about the Lord's Supper that we need a resource like yours, or this is kind of more of a rallying point, you know, kind of bringing people back together and saying, hey, let's meet at the table and let's figure this thing out. I think I'm seeing a bit of both of those things, really, um, that I've been quite, like you seeing during the pandemic, so many questions were raised about the supper. There were, um, in this country, there were some churches that, um, uh, just very instinctively did things during the pandemic uh, about the Lord's Supper. And other churches took a long time to think about uh, what the right way to respond was. And uh, and and, and as, as, as people saw the two different reactions, that got people thinking a lot more about why, why is it some people just um, uh, rush into something without needing to think about it? Why, why do others need that time to think? And it raised questions um, uh, that on both sides were things that people hadn't thought about before and they started asking questions and thinking a little bit more carefully and deeply and realizing oh maybe maybe this is a subject that we've taken a bit for granted and that we mm -hmm. need to give a bit more consideration to but I was struck as well during the pandemic and um and since talking to Christians from uh, other countries and very different cultures and uh, and seeing that Maybe there's something slightly in our English-speaking culture or our, our our very Western culture or something where we've minimized the supper in some ways and seeing the huge emphasis and the huge reverence um around the supper um in in some other cultures and um and uh, and again sometimes that it only comes out as we start to ask each other questions that uh, um. We might assume in another culture uh, that something l looks less important um, than it is in ours and realize when we ask a few questions that actually it's because it's so important. That, mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah. um, uh, so, um, uh, so I think that's been... Uh, something really interesting that the, the pandemic has has drawn out those questions and those conversations and and partly because i suppose it's opened up the ways that uh as we've been using different technologies and stuff we've we've been able to get a glimpse of church life in other parts of the world and other cultures mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. and see how how people do things differently but yet i think also during that time there has been this sort of rallying that um i've spoken to so many church leaders who've said that during this time that they've had that rediscovery of the importance of the Lord's Supper. And yeah. I suppose it's partly as as there have been times when it's not been able it's not been possible to gather with other Christians around the Lord's table that that that's awakened a hunger for that as well in many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I love the 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 uh, 
inclusivity and exclusivity, you know, that you bring up about the Lord's Supper in your book with that title, The Lord's Supper. Dr. Jonathan Black is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, and we've got a link for his book up at thebottomlineshow.com. I, I love the way you lay out this resource because it's uh, it's very comprehensive, and yet it's not too daunting, uh, which is sometimes, yeah, many of us will take a look at a book, go, wow, that's thick and has a hard cover. I'm not sure that's for me. But I mean, something like this is, is it's important for us to understand because there are many people who are coming out this saying, well, I just, you know, at my church, we, uh, they serve it to us while we're sitting down and the pastor says, here's a packet that's got, uh, you know, pre-measured cup of grape juice with a kind of bad tasting wafer on the top. And we eat the bread together when the pastor says eat it, we drink the juice whenever the pastor says drink it, and that's it. And you you address in this book, The the Lord's Supper, the fact that what, what ha- is happening here is so much more than just, I think you might have even referred to it as the trivialization of this process, but rather it, it, we're rekindling awe of for our Lord and also dispelling fear. Talk, talk about what you mean by that. Yeah, because we can get hung up so much on our our practices and and how that differs. You, know, you go to a different church and they do it slightly differently and you're a bit confused. Um, right. and, uh, and so we can get very caught up with the external practices around communion and and then we maybe forget actually what we are being invited into is to come and eat and drink in the presence of the Lord himself, that this is Christ has given us this meal, that he meets with us at this table. And so um, actually those peripheral things, those little differences between us and how we do this, they, uh, they might seem really big to us whenever we go to somewhere unfamiliar, but um, but they're not the central thing at all. That the the central thing is that we are meeting with Jesus, the one who died and rose yes. again for us. That we are coming to a place where He proclaims afresh that good news that His body has been broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins. That His blood has been shed for us to cleanse us from all our sins. Um, and so every time we come to the Lord's table. We're being refreshed in that in in hearing again the gospel. We're we're, we're meeting with our savior. We um and we come when we come to meet with Jesus, we we always meet with him in the fullness of who he is. So mm-hmm. that means that he's he meets with us in all his power and all his grace right. um as 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 we meet with him at the table. So um so maybe sometimes it can be easy for us to lose sight of that because we're meeting with him by faith that mm-hmm. um, um, uh, it might not look very impressive whenever we gather around the table, but there may be times when we're distracted because they're doing things slightly different to how they're normally done or how they're done at our home church or something yeah. like that. And, yeah. and we're, we're easily distracted by those things. But but the call at the table is, as, as we hear those words, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That, that draws us back that Jesus is speaking those words to us afresh each time, that mm. he is speaking his good news to us. He's promising us that forgiveness and 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 all his grace. And to hear it from his voice is just, it's so compelling and it's so uplifting. Dr. Jonathan Black is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about a brand new book of his uh, that is... It's it's a great resource for any time of the year, but especially now as we're getting into Advent season and thinking about the the Lord's birth and then the subsequent return, um, as we think about what the Reformation means to those of us on the Protestant side of the aisle, uh, the book is called The Lord's Supper, Our Promised Place of Intimacy and Transformation 
with Jesus. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of that conversation in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to this Everyone Wednesday edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're talking about communion, the Lord's Supper. Jonathan Black is my guest, and we have a copy of his brand new book, simply called The Lord's Supper, up for grabs. It's Everyone Wednesday, 800-227-5278, is the number to get you through to the bottom line. We have one copy of this book to give away, but we have so many resources. Oh my goodness. Um, we've got David Jeremiah uh, materials to give away. We've got a couple copies. If you talk to Crystal and ask politely, we are giving away a number of copies of Dr. Michael Youssef's book, How to Read Your Bible Like Your Life Depends on It. And I know we have a few extra copies in the control room. Just, I'm saying, I can see them from here. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. If it's for the Lord's Supper or reading your Bible. These are very, very, very crucial times that we're living in right now. And it is so important. I think biblical illiteracy is one of the biggest scourges on our nation. It's not so much that there are fewer and fewer Christians in the culture or that Christianity seems to be losing its moral, uh, its footing as our moral compass. But may I suggest that it's not so much that it's the Christians. This is the Laodicean church that we hear about or read about in Revelation chapter three, where Jesus says, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. Why? He could be saying that to the American church right now too. He's saying, look, American church, you need to either be hot or cold. And that doesn't mean either be all out, <laughs> screaming toward the wall for Christianity, or just kind of sitting on your hands. What it means is hot and cold are extreme temperatures. And if something is hot or supposed to be hot and it's not, or if something's supposed to be cold and it's not, Jesus says, look, I'm spitting you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. If I take a, a sip of a cold drink, ice cubes in it, it's been chilling in the refrigerator for a while, and I take a sip of that, and I go, ooh, that's good. Boy, it's a hot, dry day, and that cool, cold, icy, oh, that tastes so good. Or if it's on a cold night, and we've been, boy, the cold snaps we've been having all across the country, and it's chilly and soup and, you know, all sorts of comfort foods to keep you warm, and you go to take a bite of that. Well, what if it's kind of tepid? Nobody wants that. Jesus is saying, look, I made you to be the flavor that you are. I made you to be the temperature that you are. If you're hot, be hot. If you're cold, be cold. But if you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. More of our conversation about the Lord's Supper coming up next as the bottom line continues. Dr. Jonathan Black is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. He holds the distinction in addition to uh, being an ordained minister in the Apostolic Church and a lecturer in theology at Regents Theological College in West Malvern in the UK. Uh, he also studied theology at the University of Cambridge um, and uh, also at the University of Wales. And um, it, it's interesting, and I should throw in University of Chester for your PhD as well, but uh, you are also the first Bottom Line Show guest we've ever had who stayed up late in Wales to come on Zoom with us and be on uh, the program. And, I'm, I'm, and I mean that sincerely. We've talked to people in, all throughout the world who've been willing to come on with us to, to do this. But Dr. Black, I just wanted to thank you for uh, not only the book, but also uh, making the extra effort, because sometimes uh, uh, that's not always the case. <laughs> we find some of our American counterparts saying, if it can't be one o'clock on this day, I'm not doing it. You know, So they, I, I appreciate your willingness. Um, as we talk about the Lord's Supper, 
let's discuss this issue that um, has been kind of a thorn in the side for a lot of people. And that would be the literal presence, the literal body of Christ. You know, we, you write about in the book, you have a chapter on one bread, one body. Um, there are people, that's one of the things that a lot of people get hung up on, you know, mm -hmm. with, with regard to that. Talk about the importance for us understanding, get, kind of give us a, uh, your, your nutshell uh, 60 second version of what we are actually experiencing, what we're participating in at communion and what are the majors that we need to get right? And what are the minors that we can agree to disagree on? Yeah, I think sometimes we get hung up on that because we we think of ourselves in distinction to others. And we think if someone else believes that, we must believe the opposite or something like that. <laughs> yeah, um, okay. and, uh, and, and maybe that's uh, where our problems um, have come. And we've created these big divides over that question. Um, I think what's really important is we have Jesus promising to us that this is my body, this is my blood. We have the scripture talking to us about still using words bread and wine. Um, uh, but we also have a scripture in 1 Corinthians that tells us that this bread which we break, it's a participation in the body of Christ and the cup of blessing which we bless, it's a participation in the blood of Christ. So somehow through the supper, we are participating in Christ's body and blood. Um, it's still bread, it's still wine. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, Jesus is there in this bread and wine and meeting with us. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and Protestants have had a few historical differences uh, about that, or, um, uh, exactly the mechanism by, the, uh, by which that happens. Uh, sort of agreed that we, we have a different view than the Roman Catholics have, because uh, uh, they wouldn't say there's still bread and wine there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but so Protestants have had some differences over it. But, um, but I think... What's most important for us is not not the how, but but the what. That uh, that mm -hmm. it's not. We we can have differences over how exactly is it that we can encounter both Jesus and bread and wine, um. But at the same time, we can be agreed that, and we can be united in that faith that somehow it might be a mystery to us, but it's not important to us exactly how it happens. What's important to us is the reality that we are meeting with the Lord uh, as mm -hmm. we come to the table. Yes, and you've got a chapter in your book on the Lord's Supper with regard to the power of his presence. And I wonder how many people, when they will read this and, and kind of digest it a little bit, let it uh, sit in their souls, uh, will then eventually come to realize, wait a minute, I've kind of been rushing through this on my way to something else. You know, this is this is like passing the offering plate, you know, or singing mm -hmm. a hymn. It's not really, we're not actively participating, even though our church may do it every week. Uh, and and that's uh, it's important for us to understand the value of this. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Black, my guest today here on The Bottom Line, author of the brand new book called The Lord's Supper, Our Promised Place of Intimacy and Transformation with Jesus. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Um, there are in the Lutheran Church. I know there's part of the Sung Liturgy that talks about give us a foretaste of the feast to come, and we mm -hmm. think about you know that that wonderful banquet. Um, you have a chapter in the book here that wraps things up about tasting heaven. Talk about why this experience, you know, the, the eating and the drinking, uh, has more than just a ceremonial or almost symbolic experience, but there really is something powerful and spiritual that's happening at the same time. Yeah. So much in the Bible, we uh, we see the importance of this eating and drinking, and we see it all the way through um, the Old Testament um, into the New Testament of the Lord's Supper. But but right at the end in the Book of Revelation, we see this feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb that that 
we are headed for a feast. Uh, and Jesus, when he gives us the Lord's Supper, he says that, uh, that we do this until he comes, that mm-hmm. we have this, we have this, we have this feast here and now that is reminding us every time we partake of it that there is a much greater feast to come. Um, but at the same time, if we're meeting with Jesus at this feast, well, he is he is the true bread of heaven. He is he is the one who truly satisfies our souls. He is the one we hunger and thirst for. Um, he is the one who um will uh, fulfill all that desire when when he comes again and when we see him face to face. Um, and so now we're getting uh, we're getting a foretaste of that that um, we meet with Jesus in this feast um, of bread and wine, um, and that gives us a glimpse that helps us look forward to the even fuller um, uh, ultimate fulfillment of that when the Lord comes again. Mm. Um, so it should. Um, so we're not just like reciting those words that we do this until he comes, but, but rather it's, it should be raising our joy and our anticipation that our mm-hmm. longing for, um, um, we, we long to meet with him now, but we long even more for the day when we will see him face to face and, mm. uh, and we'll yes. never be parted from him again. Mm. And how wonderful will that moment be? And I, I know, especially Dr. Black, uh, for bottom line listeners who've been listening to this program for we're now in our 13th year, and to see the shift from where people are in their faith. Uh, you know, we're, we're Christians, we're Americans, we want to see our culture transformed, that type of thing, to over the past year, maybe 18 months, who is Jesus? How do I have a deeper relationship with him? When is he coming back? I mean, really, we're turning into we're like little kids who are just asking, when when's he coming back? Because and to see that anticipation, though, I think is wonderful. And the Lord's table is a place where we could experience that together. Uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Black is my guest today here on the Bottom Line. His book called The Lord's Supper is up at thebottomlineshow.com, and I highly recommend it. Uh, we've got a couple of moments left in our conversation, Dr. Black, and I would love for you to take this uh, final opportunity to share with our listeners and viewers, people who are watching us at myhopenow.com as well, uh, to to what your heart is for this project. I mean, obviously, this is an important one for you, and you lay it out so beautifully, but for whom did you write this this material? Who, who are you trying to, to reach? Is it someone who is seeking, maybe he just became a Christian, or maybe someone who's been walking with the Lord 30, 40 years and hasn't really been benefiting from the power of his presence at the Lord's Supper? I think for both, really, I, because I realized how how easy it can be for us to 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 think of the supper just as a bit of the service um that like you said it could be, we can almost think of it like the offering plate going around that it's five minutes in the service uh, that it's something we've always done and and it can be confusing for new people new christians who've never experienced this before it, but it can also be uh, something that's not fully understood by people who've known the lord for many years and, and really my desire for this project is um, just to draw people back to seeing that this is all about Jesus, to draw people back to seeing that this isn't just simply some sort of Christian practice, that this isn't about how we do things in our church, but this is something that's drawing us back. The Lord has given us this feast um, as something that draws us continually back to what's of most importance that christ died for our sins and mm-hmm. that he rose again for our salvation yeah. um, and so 
when we have the supper at the center of our worship, it's always drawing us back to Jesus and what he's done for us. That we, we are so easily distracted. There's, um, like we want we want to know all God's blessings and 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 and, uh, and, and we could be distracted by yes. different things that God does for us. Mm-hmm. And those are all wonderful things. But in the supper, it's not just one wee blessing that God does for us, but rather here is the central thing. This is where we we're draw our um we are reminded that Jesus is the one in whom all spiritual blessings are found. That, um, and if we want to know any blessing from the Lord, we'll never know any blessing from the Lord apart from through Jesus. We can't bypass Jesus to get to God's <laughs> blessings. Yes. Because, yes. Um, and when we come to Jesus to find God's blessing in Jesus, we find a blessing even greater than we've been, uh, than we might be thinking of because mm-hmm. Jesus himself is far better than, uh, than, than the many blessings that uh, that that we receive from his hands that um right. that to know the giver is greater than to know the gifts yes yes i was going to say that that the thought that rings in my head is we we worship the blesser rather than trusting in the blessings and yeah and it's the same it's the same issue and i'm so grateful that for this resource that helps us to underscore that even more uh dr jonathan black the book is called the lord's supper our promised place of intimacy and transfiguration at, with Jesus, or transformation rather. And we've got a link for the book up at the bottom line show.com. Jonathan, great to get to know you. Thank you again for staying up late for us. And uh, we appreciate your time being with us today here on the Bottom Line Show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Fun conversation about the Lord's Supper and why it is so misunderstood, why it's so important. And as I mentioned earlier, we are four weeks away from Lent. I probably said Advent. I get them mixed up. <laughs> I, I love Advent, but Easter this year is March 31st. So we've got a couple of uh, marquee days because Valentine's Day is actually Ash Wednesday as well. If you would like to better understand the Lord's Supper, and I know a lot more people do now than maybe even a couple of years ago. It is well worth your time to invest uh, reading in this book, The Lord's Supper, Our Promised Place of Intimacy and Transformation with Jesus. We do have a link, as I mentioned, for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we do have a copy of this book that we're giving away today. It's Everyone Wednesday. We have one copy of The Lord's Supper book by Dr. Jonathan Black at 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. But remember, we also have devotionals from Dr. David Jeremiah. I know we're doing a big online push for Dr. Michael Youssef's book, How to Read the Bible Like Your Life Depends on It, but uh, I, we have a couple of those too that we're also throwing in the mix as well, just between you and me. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, some good news for this Wednesday involving a church here in San Diego area. And then we're going to do a little walk, a wander, a saunter, if you will, through a video clip that's been making its way online. And uh, the guy who actually released the video has now been making the talk show circuit. Frustrated, burnt-out, former church-going person, who has a certain measure of notoriety, is now talking about the hypocrisy of Christianity, and this is why he believes the only real Christian is Jesus, and therefore anybody who says I'm a Christian is really a hypocrite. He released about a two-minute video. We're going to listen to the edited version of the audio, uh, because there's profanity in the original, and then maybe get to some brass tacks, give you a chance to weigh in on our live chat, or give us a call, let us know what you think of some of the issues that he raises. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. 
Call personal injury attorney Stephanie Cover of Cover Law first after an accident. Friends or family might tell you to get in touch with the insurance company for the party at fault first, but this is wrong. Stephanie knows countless myths that surround personal injury law, and she will help you separate fact from fiction. Stephanie worked directly for insurance companies for decades, and she knows how to navigate the process. You may wonder if your injury is too minor to warrant an attorney representing you. Stephanie can help you figure that part out with a free call, and she will tell you honestly if she thinks it's worth pursuing. Sometimes injured people are concerned about going to trial, but Stephanie prides herself on her ability to stay out of a courtroom because it typically means that she can maximize the amount you will actually receive. Don't make these decisions on your own. Contact Stephanie Cover at kbrightradio.com slash cover. That's C-O-V-E-R. So you have a woman whose values are the same as yours, biblically, who knows that when it's time to go to court and when it isn't, but 95% of the time don't have to go to court. Just follow the instructions that Stephanie Cover gives you. If you're involved in a personal injury accident, car accident, slip and fall, dog bite, whatever it is, uh, 877-214-4935 or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash cover as in cover today. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. It's Everyone Wednesday. Congratulations to Gaetano from San Diego who called and got one of those Michael Youssef books at 800-227-5278, How to Read the Bible Like Your Life Depends on It. We are still giving away one copy up for grabs of Dr. Jonathan Black's book on the Lord's Supper. And uh, quite simply, it's a book that talks about our promised place of intimacy and transformation with Jesus. We've got a link for it up at thebottomlineshow.com if you want to get a closer look at it. 800-227-5278-800-227-5278-800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Quick good news report before we get into that clip that I was talking about, about the uh, uh, the secular comedian who grew up in the church and has uh, is making a little bit of waves, a little headway. Uh, for people who are frustrated and have left the church, and he says, well, there's too much hypocrisy. Let me explain why. Uh, but the good news, though, is that Church of Compassion and the Dayspring Christian Learning Center, um, they, they, this is a church and learning center in El Cajon, and back in January 1st of 2023, the California Department of Social Services announced that they were going to be removing the church and preschool from their list of the child uh, and adult care food program that allowed them to not only participate by giving out food, but also allowed them to tap into some federal funds so they could acquire the food. And basically the reason that they did was because the Biden administration decided to expand the interpretation of Title IX. So in May of 2022, the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced that it would interpret Title IX prohibition of sex, uh, prohibition on sex discrimination to also include discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So basically the Secretary of Agriculture said at the time, the USDA is committed to administering all its programs with equity and fairness and serving those in need with the highest dignity. A key step in advancing these principles is rooting out discrimination in any form, including discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, to be fair, I don't think we should be discriminating against anyone based on who they are as people. However, let me put this a huge caveat here. If there is a church that is participating in a social program and the church says, we do not believe that people involved in same-sex, quote-unquote, marriages should be recognized because we don't recognize that as being, quote-unquote, marriage, that church should have every right, religious liberty, First Amendment, 
to discriminate. And as good Christian people, I think we should say, look, here's the deal. I honestly don't know how many people showed up at the Dayspring Christian Learning Center to participate in the child and adult care food program who were gay. I mean, and I don't think the USDA does either. They don't care. All they know, yeah, they're discrimination. And all of a sudden, they have to make sure that they're not the ones being discriminated against. They'll discriminate and take away religious liberty from Christian organizations or Jewish or Muslim organizations as well, who aren't really keen on LGBTQ rights as well. So basically by March of last year, the Church of Compassion filed a lawsuit. They filed a lawsuit with the state of California because the state cut its food program funding because the ministry says we believe in the word of God, it's living in an errant, we do not support the same-sex quote-unquote lifestyle. And so they were... They were challenged in court. Now, this, this has been an ongoing issue with faith-based organizations when it comes to adoption agencies or places that will do. There's a whole slew of cases of Catholic-run adoption agencies where the federal government or the state government or like in Philadelphia, the city government tried to shut down Catholic charities from doing adoptions and foster care simply because they would not aggressively go after uh, same-sex couples to say, hey, do you want to adopt a kid or have foster care? We've got children. You know, they basically said, look, we, we won't provide the federal funding or the city funding or the state funding you need to continue. So if you want to keep going without our money, that's fine. And in some cases, like Catholic Charities, I think in Washington, D.C., they just shut down. Massachusetts shut down as well. But the Philadelphia case was huge because the federal government was, or the city government, case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, look, here's the deal. <laughs> You can't discriminate against a Catholic group that says we want to screen our applicants, look at the home that they'll be providing, and then place a child in foster care for adoption. There are plenty of other agencies in the city of Philadelphia that will gladly adopt to single parents or same-sex marriage parents. You can't force a Catholic group to do this. In the same way, the Church of Compassion and Dayspring Christian Learning Center fell in the same category. Alliance Defending Freedom took up for them. They filed the lawsuit and said, look, you can't discriminate against a church that has this program and does get the federal funding that they use to actually buy the fun or the food and hire people and this, that, and the other thing. You can't discriminate against the church just because in the church they'll open the Word of God on Sunday morning and preach from 1 Corinthians 6.19 and talk about same-sex sexual relationships being a, an abomination against God. Well, fortunately, um, it turns out that the, uh, a settlement has been reached in said case. The El Cajon-based preschool will now be removed from the CACFP national disqualified list, and the Ca California Department of Social Services will then be required to reimburse Dayspring Christian Learning Center for the program costs for administration of the CACFP for additional months in the event that the department has not received notification from the USDA of Dayspring's removal from the disqualified list. Basically, the effective date of the agreement, if it's 14 days after, once 15 days happens, uh, Dayspring then will voluntarily dismiss their lawsuit, and everything's fine. Uh, brothers and sisters, look. I mean, this is one of those cases where you say, oh, there goes a church going to court again. This is Apostle Paul before the Roman government saying, look, the church isn't doing anything wrong. The church is being the church, feeding, clothing, reaching out to the less fortunate in the community. 
Now, some might say, well, yeah, but because this way you shouldn't be qualifying for federal funds. But the federal government or the state of California government does not have the legal right to do this to a church and a Christian preschool. They just don't. They do it because they bully people and run them over. Fortunately, there are organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom that will take up the cause. So that's a good on you for a San Diego-based preschool, and we're so glad everyone is rejoicing in El Cajon. And, uh, well, that's all there is to that. I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get in, start hearing some of this audio. It's a very short clip, just a couple of minutes. It's one of those rapid-fire, left-leaning, I'm going to say these things so quickly, and you're going to resonate with a few of them, and then you won't be able to respond to them, that we're going to put together, I think, a very thoughtful, uh, loving, <laughs> uh, Christ-centered response to a former Christian who is getting a lot of play, in the media right now, for voicing his concerns about what he calls Christian hypocrisy. We're going to talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know, one place where Christians have been labeled as hypocritical is when it comes to the sanctity of human life. A lot of people have said, you're not pro-life, you're pro-birth. You just want a woman to have a baby, and that's the end of the story. Well, our friends at Preborn take that pro-birth to a whole new level. When a woman goes, thinks she might be pregnant, goes in for a pregnancy test at a preborn clinic, she gets an ultrasound appointment. They do an ultrasound image of the child. They get heartbeat, measure, find out how far along she is in the pregnancy. First pictures of the mom gets to see of her baby are those preborn ultrasounds. And then 85% of the time, the women who make uh, that appointment and go and have that ultrasound done choose life for their baby. What they choose is either to be parents or to bring that child uh, into the world and then release that child for adoption. Abortion clinics don't want kids to be adopted, but preborn does. Your $28 donation right now will provide another ultrasound visit for uh, a woman who's confused and looking for some help right now. So take that $28, multiply it by whatever number comes to mind, and that's the number of kids you're going to save. It's completely tax deductible. Call 833-850-BABY-2229 or click the preborn banner when you go to K-Bright Radio today. $28 saves a life. Act now. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. It's Everyone Wednesday today here on the program, and everybody who calls 800-227-5278 is going to win something. A uh, guy called in with his... Uh, uh, called in to win the Michael Youssef book on uh, Praying as If Your Life Depends on It. We still have Dr. Jonathan Black's book on uh, the Lord's Supper, which is up for grabs. And also, too, we have a pair of tickets. Just got these. Uh, for the Homeschool Made Simple event at Watermark OC Church coming up this Saturday, January the 20th. It's a literature-based approach to education. It's a great homeschooling seminar. If you have kids or grandkids and, and you're debating whether or not to explore homeschooling, this is happening at Watermark OC Church in Costa Mesa this Saturday, January the 20th. And we have a pair of tickets to that event to give away as well. That's all in the prize packet. When you call 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through for the Bottom Line Show, for the Homeschool Made Simple tickets, for the Jonathan Black book on the Lord's Prayer, for copies of Dr. Michael Youssef's book, How to Read the Bible Like Your Life Depends on It, David Jeremiah, uh, devotionals, we have lots, and you're going to win something. So uh, don't just kind of sit back on your hands. I know we have a lot of polite listeners who will say, oh, you know what, they've only got one book, I'm not going to call. Call, <laughs> please. Seriously, the time is so important, and these are all resources that will benefit you in your walk of faith, because there are a lot of people asking questions about the Christian faith. A lot of people either who grew up in the faith 
and wandered away from it. I, I don't like the expression, it didn't stick or it didn't take. But I saw this happen when President Trump won the election on November the 8th, 2016. There were a lot of people in the church who were concerned because they thought, oh, oh here comes fascism and whatever. I still subscribe to a couple of uh, uh, regular email alerts from organizations that profess to be Christian, and yet they have swallowed hook, line, and sinker all of the leftist, progressive, totalitarian uh, regime statements. A question that came out of their group, I think it was yesterday, or maybe it was this morning, after the Iowa caucuses was, uh, why do so many evangelicals embrace the fascist doctrine of Donald Trump? And I thought, okay, hold on a second. Let, let's go back and define fascism. But it's amazing how in a soundbite culture, where everyone's getting their news of the world in 30 seconds or less, and then you have that fight-or-flight tendency that says, I have to make a decision quickly. I'm not surprised that a lot of people are either going into the churches and saying, yeah, I grew up in the church, church is great, I'm an American, I make a lot of money, I met a lot of nice people, my life's pretty cool, so I'm a Christian. And never really were taught what the gospel message is, that you're a sinner, you're born into a sinful, fallen world, you can't free yourself from that sin, God is a holy God and he wants a relationship with you, but the only way he can have that relationship with you is if you are now absolved and cleansed of your sin. Enter Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, who took your place on the cross and my place on the cross and his blood pays the penalty for our sin and washes our slate clean. The comedian John Fugelsang apparently grew up in a church-going home. He has released a couple of videos and gone on some left-leaning television explaining why he's not a Christian, and it's because of what he calls Christian hypocrisy. We're going to take a quick break, and on the other side of this break, we're going to come back. It's a short clip, only a couple of minutes. We did have to beep out some of the profanity, because that's where he is right now. And I want to try to dissect what he says, because people are listening to like the last minute of this going, yeah, this is how I feel, yeah! And I'm like, okay, but do you know why you feel that way? And is there a response to what he's saying? We're going to give it our best. <laughs> Coming up next as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to this Everyone Wednesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, still taking your calls at 800-227-5278 if you want to get in on the drawing for uh, the book by uh, Dr. Jonathan Black on the Lord's Supper. And also we have uh, a number of other resources to give away. And hey, yesterday we did this for the first time. Hey, um, we have a live chat function. If you listen on our app, the Kbrite app that's available in the App Store for whatever app you have, and um, I just chatted in the chat. Hey, hello, chatters. Uh, if you want to go on the Kbright group chat app and you have conversation that you want to uh, get into, or um, not only that, but to actually have a conversation, let your thoughts be known with regard to the, what we're about to hear, would love to get that comment uh, going on the Kbright app. So check it out. Okay. Uh, by the way, uh, Greg Gregorio from Antioch just called in and picked up one of the Michael Youssef books. Uh, congratulations, Gregorio. You're going to love that. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Okay, let's get into this. Now, John Fugelsang is a comedian ostensibly. I, I believe he's a comedian. And, I, and I, I'm not saying that to be sarcastic. This was a guy who first burst on the national scene, I think it was uh, whenever American Idol first started. Was that in 2002 or 2001? I don't remember. I should remember 
because I was working for Fox at the time, and I was one of the booth announcers. So if you watched American Idol, American Idol is sponsored by Diet Coke. That was me. And, um, and John Fugelsang and Brian Seacrest were the hosts. That's, that's how they did, uh, was it British Idol or UK Idol? They had two hosts, and they would uh, kind of prep and talk to the audience, whatever. By the end of the first season, it was apparent that Ryan Seacrest was the crowd favorite, and John Fugelsang was kind of redundant. And so the next year, Ryan Seacrest became the host, and he really took off. John Fugelsang, I, and I can only imagine what it's like to be that close to, you know, why wasn't it me? Why, I don't know. But here's the deal. I mean, he's, he's hung around. He's been on some reality shows. I think he's had a, a, a left-leaning political show. I mean, he's, he's had a career. He's still a name. The other day I was online. I think I may have been on YouTube. And I was, I, I, that's kind of my search engine when I go online for video. I, I, if I'm looking for music video, conversation pieces, something that has to do with the show, I love going on to YouTube and finding that stuff. Sometimes it's kind of crazy, but uh, for the most part, it's, uh, it's fairly decent. Um, I came across a clip that was posted about three months ago, and it's John Fugel saying, it looks like he's at some place, uh, like a hotel or something. He's giving an interview. He's just holding a handheld microphone. You'll hear the sibilance, you know, coming into the uh, mic. But basically, it just the title of the video was John Fugel saying on Christianity. And it's about a two-minute and 35-second rant where he explains his background, how he grew up in a church-going home, how he wandered away from his faith, and the reasons why he thinks that the biggest threat to the church are people who call themselves Christians. I thought this was interesting because oftentimes someone will put out a rant, you know, like, here's 60 seconds of this, bang, 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 yeah, and then everybody goes, yay, way to go, I, I, that all resonates with me, I, I totally, uh, uh, yeah, and then the church will kind of sit back and go, what? And we won't really give an answer to it. Well, what does 1 Peter 3.15 say? Always be prepared to give an answer for the things that you believe in, you know, your, the hope that lies within you, and do so with gentleness and respect. So with gentleness and respect, I'd like to feature this, uh, take the last half hour of the program to walk through this video, give you a chance to hear the audio of it, and then to respond to some of the allegations that he makes, because some of them are going to sound very credible. Some of them probably are pretty credible. But then some of them are a little angry and hurt. So let's get into it now. Joel, let's go with cut number one, John Fugelsang on Christianity. My mother was a nun. Uh, she was a nun and a nurse who worked with lepers in Malawi, Africa. My father was a Franciscan brother who taught history to Catholic boys in Brooklyn and wore the, the robes and was like the lost Jedi of Flatbush. And I grew up admiring Jesus the way anybody admires mom's first husband. Hold um, on for just a second there. Just, let's, let's get into this a little more fully, not just letting him run through it, because somebody might have heard that uh, Jedi is a Flatbush thing and thought that was really funny. Apparently, John Fugelsang grew up in a home where his dad had been a monk, and his mother had been a nun. Now, obviously, if you understand the Catholic tradition or the Franciscan tradition, the Franciscan monk was never going to get married, and neither was the Catholic nun. So something happened along the way in terms of his spiritual formation that said, okay, you guys got married, so you're not part of that spiritual formation. And so for him to make the comment that, you know, he, he, he admired Jesus the same way that someone would admire, uh, you know, mom's boss or something like that, 
it's a little snarky, but I can see where there might be a certain measure of confusion. So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to understand where he's coming from and why he felt it was so necessary to make that observation. I'm, I'm sure a lot of us uh, can say the same thing. Boy, uh, we were talking about this on National Crawford Roundtable podcast, which you'll hear tomorrow. Uh, Bob Duco grew up in a home that was run by the Worldwide Church of God, which is a proven cult. And Bob talked, I think he was 17 when he finally got away from there. The part of the reason why apologetics is such a big deal in Bob Duco's ministry is being able to give an answer, give an explanation to talk about why true faith is true faith and how it looks like something totally different. Okay, so let's continue now. Uh, this is John Fugelsang talking about his dad was a Franciscan monk, his mother was a nun, and he said he admired Jesus kind of the same way you would admire one of your parents' bosses. Okay, go ahead. I aspire to be Christian. I aspire to be more Christian. I would not presume to handle that label on myself. Christianity is under attack in America, and it has always been under attack by the same group, people who declare themselves Christians and actively work against everything Christ talked about. Okay, now that's a very interesting statement because what most people will hear when they hear him make that statement is, I aspire to be a Christian, and I realize that the enemy of Christianity, basically, is people who call themselves Christians but work against everything that Jesus said he was about. Now, when you talk about, I aspire to be a Christian, that at best would be Torah obedience in the Old Testament, and the, the, the God's chosen people were not aspiring to be Christians by any stretch of the imagination. They wanted to be the children of God. God basically said, if you obey me, I bless you. If you disobey me, I curse you. They were waiting for Messiah, and in many cases, people who identify as Jewish are still waiting for Messiah. Of course, Jesus Christ came, and he was called rabbi, and he was a complete—I mean, he was as Jewish as you can get. But the idea, then, that John Fugelsang would say, okay, the Christian—the Christianity that I see in the culture right now basically works against everything that Jesus taught is a pretty bold, broad statement— so what, in fact, does that mean, you may ask? Well, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to get into John Fugelsang's laundry list of why he thinks people who identify as Christian in the United States are not Christians simply because they're completely against everything, in his estimation, that Jesus stood for. We'll take a listen to that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Here's Dennis Wilson of Wilson Financial Services with a reminder that your investments do more than just make money. They actually change lives. This Christmas, we gave our family the gift of life. So I thought, let's do the same for our Wilson Financial clients. A way of saying thank you for being in partnership with us in the ministry. What we're going to do to honor our clients is we're going to fund 100 ultrasounds per month, each month for the next 12 months through preborn. Also, each quarter, we're going to buy an ultrasound machine, and at the end of the year, those machines will be saving an average of 1,600 children per year. We do this to honor and inform our clients of this great ministry and to say thank you for being our clients and being our friends. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. 
Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. It's Everyone Wednesday. We're still taking your calls at 800-227-5278 for any of the resources we're giving away today. We've got a pair of tickets to the Homeschooling Expo this Saturday at Watermark OC Church in Costa Mesa. We've got a copy of uh, Dr. Jonathan Black's book on the Lord's Supper. Got a couple copies left of Dr. Michael Youssef's book on reading the Bible as if your life depended on it. And David Jeremiah devotionals, Jeremy McGarity stuff, and much more. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Uh, we're listening to this video from John Fugel saying that John has been preaching this for quite some time. I, I, as I dug a little deeper in, uh, in my study and uh, background on this, uh, there was, it really depends on the platform, but one guy he did a interview with a couple of years ago, spent about an hour, got like 6,000 views. Another guy, he did an interview nine days ago. Well, he didn't do the interview. He actually, uh, this guy called Tennessee Brando played the clip and got 170,000 views in a week. So, I mean, a lot of people are paying attention to this. But I think what's interesting is he raises some interesting points that I think we as Christians, A, should be prepared for more of these type of rants and people asking these types of questions, and maybe you face them in your own world. But B, how do we respond to it? And the way to respond is not to just say, well, I'll never watch that guy again. <laughs> you know, that cancel culture ghosting thing. I don't think that's very fair or loving. Joel, play the first clip again, if you would. And we'll use that to kind of set it up for those who are just tuning in. Here's John Fugel saying, explaining his faith foundation when he was growing up. Cut number one. My mother was a nun. Uh, she was a nun and a nurse who worked with lepers in Malawi, Africa. My father was a Franciscan brother who taught history to Catholic boys in Brooklyn and wore the, the robes and was like the lost Jedi of Flatbush. And I grew up admiring Jesus the way anybody admires mom's first husband. Um, I aspire to be Christian. I aspire to be more Christian. I would not presume to handle that label on myself. Christianity is under attack in America, and it has always been under attack by the same group, people who declare themselves Christians, and actively work against everything Christ talked about. Now, there's no question there are a number of people in this country who profess faith in Christ and don't have it. George Barna's statistics actually bear that out. That's a point where I'd say, you know what, I agree with you, John. There are a number of people who are doing more harm than good for the cause of Christ simply because they don't live the way Jesus lived, because they use the church as a means to an end. I totally get it. I'm intrigued by the fact that he said, I aspire to be a Christian because I don't know that anybody can work any harder once you receive the gift of faith, which enables you to receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There's really nothing I did, nothing you did to get that salvation. But okay, point being what it is. Let's get into now the crux of his argument, cut number two, Joel, if you would. Every Christian president who owned people was not Christian. Now, technically, we could split hairs on this on anything and say that no one's Christian for any reason, and I'm of the opinion there's only been one Christian, and he died on the cross, and he was the first innocent, brown-skinned, famous person to ever get the death penalty. Okay, hold on a second. Well, stop. I wanted to get to the end of this clip, but I, I, we, this is where he's getting warmed up, and I think this is where the conversation goes off the rails. When he, he says, any president who owned people is not a Christian. I, you can make a case that any person, doesn't matter if they're a president, who owned slavery, or who participated in slavery, owned slave, bought and sold, this, that, and the other thing. You have to wonder what was going on in the clergy when they're misreading the epistles, when, when they're looking at Galatians and, and Colossians and, and seeing, you know, Paul's admonition to those who were hired servants, 
who basically had hired themselves out because they were paying off debt. There's a huge difference between someone who says, look, I owe you a lot of money. Let me work for you for a couple of years. Let my wages work off my debt. And then if I want to be your manservant or your maidservant, then you put the all in my ear and you know, we, we have an arrangement. But that was a mutual agreement. Now, sure, there were people who were slaves. I mean, the Romans were terrible. This is where Christianity came in and said, whoa, 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 we're going to do this in a much different way. Read the book of Philemon. I mean, and talk about the way uh, the quote-unquote slave was to treat uh, the quote-unquote master. The whole conversation, just to blow through that and say, any president that owned people can't be a Christian. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's a little quick. And then the brown skin first death penalty. Okay, that's super cultural. And I, I still boggles my mind the number of people who will say, well, the Jews killed Jesus or whatever. It's like, wait a minute, nobody killed Jesus. I mean, <laughs> Jesus was compelled to go to the cross and bear the weight of the sin of the world and conquered sin and death. He was not killed. He conquered sin and death. But to John Fugelsang's point, he said, well, one of the things I don't like about this is this brown-skinned Middle Eastern man. Okay. All right. Uh, continue, Joel, if you would, with cut number two. Person to ever get the death penalty. Because he was. But um, I think that right now, today, our loudest Christians are the ones who are the most rejecting the teachings of Christ. Uh, for a lot of right-wing America, the Bible consists of the Book of Leviticus and the Book of Revelation duct tape to the entire Left Behind series. Now, that, he really doesn't like the Left Behind series. I, I'd love to, <laughs> we'll have to get Jerry B. Jenkins back on the program to talk about the Left Behind series, because, I mean, it did sell a lot of copies, but there were 13 or 14 books in the series. So uh, 72 million still, it's impressive that a lot of people read it. And there are those who would look at that and say, okay, well, you have to be pre-trib to believe the Left Behind series and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, something about the Left Behind series obviously got under John Fugelsang's skin. But... What intrigues me about what he's saying is I hear a certain level of hurt, a certain level of I want to be part of that club, but I'm not part of the club. And it's because if you hear, if you listen to what he's saying, you know, kind of listen between the lines, as it were, uh, he talks about Jesus as a man more than as the Son of God. He talks about the relationship a little bit more transactionally. I aspire to do this. And he's trying to define Jesus by cultural terms. When we worship God, we worship him in spirit and in truth. I don't know that anyone benefits from having a conversation and a debate and an argument about Jesus' ethnicity. I mean, God is way bigger than that. What did he look like when, when Jesus walked the earth? What did he look like? Well, of course, he looked like the area that he was inhabiting. Go to the Middle East, look what people in Bethlehem, Judea, Jerusalem, but what, what they look like. That's typically what Jesus was going to look like physically. But we're not stuck with that. And was Jesus white? Was Jesus black? Was Jesus whatever? That You're missing the point. It's a non sequitur to the church. But to a guy in Fugelsang's position, it's like, well, he was a Middle Eastern guy, and well, we got to move us out. You, uh, wait till you hear the third. Well, we'll get into it before the break here. Uh, this is where he unloads the laundry list, and oftentimes this is a tactic that either faith-based people will use when they don't really have an argument for what they're saying. They'll just kind of keep coming at you. You know, a preacher goes, and God wants to do this, and God wants to do that, da 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 and you sit there and go, whoa, 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 wait, did God really say that? Or is that you trying to get the crowd all up in arms? When you hear the way John Fugel saying lands his argument about why he thinks Christianity is nothing but hypocrisy. Let's get into it. Joel, go ahead, cut number three. The actual teachings of Christ are ignored, 
And uh, Jesus, if you go by the book, was a peaceful, radical, nonviolent revolutionary who spent time with lepers and criminals, was not an American citizen, never spoke English, was anti-capitalism, anti-wealth, completely anti-death penalty, anti-public prayer, Matthew 6, 5, oh yes he was, look it up, but never once anti-gay. Never mentioned abortion, never called the poor lazy, never fought for tax cuts for the wealthiest Nazarenes, never said torture's okay sometimes, and was a long-haired, we think, that might be wrong, uh, brown-skinned, we know that, that's in Revelation, you left behind books, brown-skinned, homeless, community-organizing, liberal, Palestinian, anti-shaming, unarmed Jew, if you believe what's actually in the Bible. Our problem now is we have Christians who think a talking snake is literal fact, but Christ saying love your enemies was just him being all metaphorical. And Okay, so that's the John Fugel saying argument. Now Joel has the fun task because we've got this on the computer. He's going to have to start and stop me. Let's get into, well, you know, we'll take a break, get a little breather here, and then dive in the final uh, 10 minutes or so of the program as to what his challenges were and how we can respond to them. Because I think they, they do definitely warrant an answer, especially for someone who said he grew up in the church and really wants to be a Christian, but then puts together a whole laundry list of things that Jesus wasn't, and so therefore we shouldn't be either. We'll talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. One thing we do know about Jesus is he was passionately pro-life. I mean, he's the author and creator of everything, but especially when we read in Psalm 139 that Jesus knits together our human form in the womb, and everyone is unique, and every child is created for a purpose. In this culture, there are a lot of people who don't see that way, and that's why we in the body of Christ can step up through our friends at Preborn and show them the value of human life through an ultrasound. Go to an abortion clinic and they do an ultrasound so they get guidance on how to abort the child. At preborn, the ultrasound is the beginning of the journey. Here's how far along you are. Here's a picture of your son or daughter. Here's what the heartbeat sounds like. Now, here's what the plan looks like for the next couple of years if you choose to become a parent, if you choose to release your child for adoption. Preborn answers all those questions and those ultrasound visits are free. The reason they are is because we donate money to make them happen. $15,000 provides one ultrasound machine that can do 250 ultrasounds per year for a minimum of 10 years. That's about six bucks per visit. Can you make that donation even a part of that donation today? Call 833-850-BABY, 833-850-2229, or go online to kbrightradio.com, click on the preborn banner, and make your best donation right now. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. John Fugelsang getting all sorts of uh, play for his videos uh, where he's coming after, uh, you know, coming after Christians and saying, hey, look, you're not really Christians. You're just pretending to be Christians. I want to get in back into this final uh, cut number three, and Joel's going to have to do a lot of starting and stopping. I'm going to do my best in the last 10 minutes or so here of the program to respond to his accusations and see which ones uh, have merit and which ones don't. So, Joel, fire away and keep your hand on the B-bar ready to go. Cut number three. The actual teachings of Christ are ignored, and uh, Jesus, if you go by the book, was a peaceful, radical, nonviolent revolutionary who spent time with lepers and criminals, was not an Whoa, American stop, citizen. Stop, 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 stop. Did Jesus spend time with lepers and criminals? He healed lepers. He invited criminals to come and follow him. So sure. Uh, how do Christians avoid that? We don't. Are, are Christians not involved in leprosy ministries? 
are Christians not reaching out to people, I mean, in various states of uh, the legal system? I mean, some people, and we go to prison, visit people who are sick and in prison. Uh, we welcome people who are drawn by the Spirit. It has nothing to do with your physical circumstances in that moment. Is he really of the impression that every Christian doesn't want anything to do with lepers? Now, I'll be honest with you, I've never met a leper. I don't know how common leprosy is. I realize it's more of a metaphor for him, for the unreachable, the untouchable, but that's not what I see in the body of Christ. Apparently he does. Go ahead, Joel, continue. Who spent time with lepers and criminals was not an American citizen. Never. Right there. Who cares? Do you really honestly think there are people who come to faith in Christ because I believe that Jesus wasn't American? Duh, he's the son of God. I mean, he's human and divine for crying out loud. So why, I mean, do you really honestly believe? Now, granted, if you come across somebody who says, let's make America great again because this is what Jesus wants. I mean, that whole, we, we dec- uh, decried the AI Paul Harvey who read that, you know, uh, God made Trump thing because it's, uh, God said he wants to save America. Well, really? I mean, and he doesn't care about Pakistan or Afghanistan? I mean, come on. It doesn't matter that Jesus wasn't American because he's fully human and fully divine. Not like Jesus was Israeli or Egyptian or something like that. He was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Full stop. He will return to Jerusalem. Full stop. Whether or not Jesus was an American is completely immaterial. Continue if you would. ...was not an American citizen, never spoke English, was anti Well, stop, stop again. So what? God, John, oh my goodness. Jesus never spoke English. This is what people are resonating with. I don't know which is worse, to be honest with you. The fact that there are so many people who have created, George Barna has shared with us over and over again, that as many as 70% of Americans say they believe in God, but when it comes to actually, he's got some markers for what it means to hold a biblical worldview, and 6% of those people actually have a biblical worldview. So who cares if Jesus wasn't English and didn't speak, wasn't American and didn't speak English? I'm sorry, that's just, I, I, but for some reason, though, this man is under the impression that there are Christians in America who believe that the only reason why they follow Jesus is because he's got this American vibe and he speaks English. Better yet, he speaks California, dude. Okay, please continue spoke English, was anti-capitalism, anti-wealth, completely anti- Whoa, 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 whoa. Where was Jesus anti-capitalism or wealth? May I remind you that Jesus had three, I mean, there were 12 disciples and the core group, Peter, James, and John, were his core group. And then he had three friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Do you know how often they met at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? And do you know what their home was? That home was at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha's parents, and dad was loaded. Do you know how many women were bankrolling the ministry of Jesus? Read it. You you can find it in Scripture. There were many benefactors. Anti-capitalism? Go to the Garden of Eden. Capitalism is God's idea. Capitalism isn't the problem. Corruption in capitalism is the problem. Anti-wealth? Jesus says, he never says, don't be wealthy. He does say, it's easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than a a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. The rich young ruler comes up and Jesus says, sell everything. But he's not anti-capitalism. 
Please continue. Let's see what we can get done in the last 30 seconds here. Capitalism, anti-wealth, completely anti-death penalty, anti-public prayer, Matthew 6, 5. Oh, yes, he was. Okay, I'll stop here. I'll stop here. I can't go any further than that because we're out of time. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 6, 5, says, don't pray publicly, you hypocrites. A hypocrite in Greek literally means an actor or a stage player. What he's talking about is not that people shouldn't pray publicly. He's a direct jab at the Pharisees who like to pray in the public so everybody could say, dig me, I'm a praying person. Whether you pray out, Jesus prayed in public. Jesus prayed, how many prayers do we see in the Gospels? Jesus praying in the presence of his disciples. I mean, public prayer is not the problem, it's the attitude for prayer that is. When he says, go off into the quiet places, what he's basically saying is, get off your pedestal, get off your high horse, get off the stage, and make God the center of your worship. I could go on. But the whole clip is up at thebottomlineshow.com. I think it's important for us to have these moments, though, because you're going to encounter more people. You're even going to encounter them in church who are going to say similar things. And they're going to say, and that's why I'm not a Christian, because Christianity means hypocrisy. So the question then is, how do you respond? Now, I got a little emotional in a couple places here, but if I were sitting across the table from John Fugel saying I would do my level best to keep my composure and let a gentle word turn away wrath. Our job is to preach the gospel in season and out of season. That's the bottom line. 